Okay, tonight we are beginning John 13, and because we're going to be, this is our starting our study of the Passion history from John. And so I'm not going to be pushing to get through each chapter, a whole chapter a night. Uh, we're going to kind of try to take it slow and easy. And uh, remember your little cards I gave you? What to look for? Uh, law, gospel, catechism connection. Does this fit with some commandment that would be more with law? Does this fit with some part of the creed that may be more with the gospel? Does, is there a line of the Lord's Prayer or baptism or... Lord's Supper, or, or anything that can help me make a connection. Other parts of Scripture, uh, parallels, near parallels. Uh, I want you to be looking for those kinds of things as we go forward. Uh, so, let's begin with prayer. Jesus, I will ponder now on your holy passion. With your spirit me endow for such meditation. Grant that I in love and faith may the image cherish of your suffering, pain, and death, that I may not perish. Amen. Okay. So just like some stores have Christmas in July, we're going to have Lent in October. Uh, before we get started, I was... People are asking, how are you doing? And I said, oh, this little sad, little off. Uh, my favorite college professor passed away this morning. Uh, Daniel Deutschland. And uh, he was one of those professors who kind of sticks with you. And I have to say, I was not... Well, in college, we, would, we did go over to his house some some beverages and and, uh, and would order pizza and, and do that a few times but I would can't say I was really close or stayed really close with him but just his teaching style that is something that stuck with me very much so when I say here's your ten dollar word for the night that that's a little bit of him or when I, I get into something and I say, this is connected to this, and this happened because of that, and these, all these connections. Professor Deutschlander used to do that all the time. And that had an impact on how I teach a Bible class and how I preach. And uh, another thing that... Uh, he, he, he taught German. Uh, and German was pretty dull until he started bringing Christian doctrine into it. And he had, uh, we were his first college class. And so it was, I think it was, I think it might have been right around Christmas. Uh, he pulled out a, a Christmas sermon from C.F.W. Walther. He was a founder of the Missouri Synod. And he said, Let, let's read through this Christmas sermon. 
and then he would explain, okay, the, the, the German word for grace. In English, you think of being gracious and graceful, and the, the German is a much more solid word than that. It's, it's undeserved love, uh, but it's love that comes you know, from the Father's heart without any reason. You talked about the, 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 the Grundlose Gnade, the, the, we would say boundless grace, but he, he would say grace for no reason on our part. Uh, baseless, maybe. Uh, and uh, really drilled biblical doctrine into us. Definitions of words and things like that. So, uh, he passed away today, and uh, if, if you're on Facebook with me, I put some things, yeah, I put some lectures up uh, on my personal website, uh, and so you can watch him. Uh, theology of the Cross, uh, he's got two hours on the Theology of the Cross. You will know exactly what the theology of the cross is all about after you watch him. Uh, he had an, another book. He, he wrote a book, The Theology of the Cross. He wrote also another book called The Narrow Lutheran Middle. How do we stay in the narrow middle without becoming a total legalist on the one side or without be, becoming completely... Uh, lawless on the other. We believe in God's grace and free pardon. Uh, and how do, we, how do we keep that narrow middle? Uh, he also wrote a book on church and state and called it uh, Civil Government, God's Other Kingdom. Uh, and so in the next few days, uh, I'm going to be putting those up different ones that I find, uh, I'm going to be putting those up on my own website, and then that'll be linked to Facebook also. Yep. In college, was that at Watertown? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yep, that was, yeah, the 1984-1985 school year. That was his first year at Northwestern, and... Uh, he made the assumption, oh, that we have most mostly students who came from our Lutheran prep schools and who learned, uh, learned German in our Lutheran prep schools. So we should be able to take off running. And he was amazed at how little German we knew. And he said, well, that was plan A. Let's go with plan B. And he gave us tons of vocabulary. And okay, that's, this is how you're going to learn to read German, by looking at all of this massive vocabulary, like 100 words a day. This is college-level German, by the way. And we did miserably at that. So that was, there goes plan B, and he said, well, let's try plan C. And he got out, uh, had, oh, you remember the mimeograph? 
the, 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 these, this purple spirit duplicator stuff. He had reproduced on that, uh, it's called Märchen, German fairy tales. Uh, some of them by, uh, oh, some of the, the more important German writers of the early 20th century. And, and that uh, because they're fairy tales, they're, uh, the vocabulary was simpler. And then we picked up the grammar and vocabulary from that. Uh, and then he brought out, and correction, it was Easter sermons. That was it. And that's when things got really interesting. Easter sermons of C.F.W. Walther. Uh, started reading those in the spring. And uh, yeah. he also had a Russian history elective. I didn't take that one. <coughs> had a classmate who took that and that uh, right before semester he transferred to DMLC in New Ulm because he didn't want to take that test. He was so afraid of the, the Russian uh, history elective. Um, but Professor Deutschlander uh, had a big impact on many of our pastors. I think Pastor Dorn was too young to, to have had Professor Deutschlander, but uh, Many of our pastors, so it would be my age, probably through somebody like Pastor Sims, like a, a 99 uh, graduate, maybe a 2004 graduate might have had uh, Professor Deutschlander. But uh, anyway, he passed away today and... Uh, Where was he at now? He was at the Heritage Village in Watertown, and then just recently uh, went to Rainbow Hospice in Johnson Creek. So, so anyway, uh, we are in John chapter 13. Uh, and Something that, that we're going to see is we always have to stop and ask what question? Who is Jesus? Who's, who is Jesus? Uh, and that in the Passion history, that comes up. Uh, something else, because it's the Passion history, uh, sometimes we have to ask, Who's really in control? We know who's really in control. Uh, but that's something that John emphasizes in his passion history, perhaps a little more than Matthew, Mark, or Luke do. Who's really in control? Uh, and already in John 13, uh, John has... Uh, several chapters just on what's happening in the upper room. And then he goes on to the high priest's trial and then Pilate's trial and then the crucifixion. And there's one thing that John seems to leave, seems to leave out of his account of the upper room on Maundy Thursday. 
One thing he does not talk about is the Lord's Supper. He talks about everything else. Uh, remember before I said he's assuming we've read Luke or Matthew and that perhaps that's what John is doing. All these other things happened. Let's talk about those. So, John chapter 13. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved those who were his own in the world, he loved them to the end. And the footnote says that can also be understood as he loved them to the utmost. Uh, so just verse 1, who is Jesus? Well, he's all-knowing. He's all-knowing. And in this instance here, he knows all the bad things that are about to happen to him. So who is Jesus? All-knowing. And then another reason why he goes forward with all of this. Second half of that verse. He's going home to the Father. He's going home to the Father. And then the reason why he, he does all of this, the reason he lays down his life is he loves them. His great love moves him. Uh, okay, that's a pleasant thought. Now we got an unpleasant By the time the supper took place, the devil had already put the idea into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Uh, the way Matthew tells it, Matthew brings that uh, Saturday before Palm Sunday and kind of merges it into where Wednesday should be as his kind of his explanation this is then why Judas went to the chief priests Judas figured out Jesus is on to me he he knows i'm helping myself to the money bag and being a disciple of Jesus isn't going to be financially profitable to me so how can i make a quick buck And he, he bargains with the chief priest the way somebody would bargain with for, a, for a used car. How much will you give me? Uh, so remember again, John likes to come back. And sometimes we might even say, as far as English style, this is redundant. But he repeats the thought from the first verse. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. Was really in control? Jesus. And that he had come from God and was going back to God. He got up from the supper and laid aside his outer garment. He took a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, 
drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, You do not understand what I am doing now, but later you will understand. Peter told him, You will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Lord, not just my feet, Simon Peter replied, but also my hands and my head. Jesus told him a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet, but his body is completely clean. And you are, all, you are clean, but not all of you. Indeed, he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. After Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garment, he reclined at the table again. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord. You are right because I am. Now if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Yes, I have given you an example so that you would do just as I have done for you. Amen, amen, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Okay. Now. Some thoughts. Anything strike you about this section? Is this just about dirty feet? Now, earlier, and I think this would be, this would have to be the Gospel of Luke. Uh, this is connected, oh, remember the, the sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet earlier in the Gospel of Luke. Similar to what Mary of Bethany does, but a different person, a different time, even a different year. Uh, Jesus mentions, when I came, you showed me no hospitality. Uh, you didn't give me oil for my head, she's poured perfume on my feet. You didn't wash my feet, but she has uh, anointed my feet and has wiped them with her hair. Uh, in that climate and with the kind of footwear they had at the time, washing feet would be an important thing. It would be a very refreshing thing. Uh, and thinking of Simon the Pharisee back in, at the beginning of Luke, uh, it was a hospitable thing that he didn't do. So Jesus is doing a hospitable thing. He's doing something else. Washing away their sins? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I would say, remember our figures of speech class? When we talked about metaphor. And this is kind of like a visual metaphor. Or I think sometimes we'd call it an object lesson. 
at the beginning, yeah, verse 4. Jesus gets up from the supper and lays aside his outer garment, washes their feet, and then takes it up again. As I was going through this, I was thinking, oh, that lays aside. That reminds me of something from John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep only to take it up again. That Jesus is kind of playing out in a lesser way what he's going to do tomorrow in a greater way. He's going to lay aside his life for the sake of cleansing from sin and then he will take it up again. Uh, and then uh, his exchange with Peter. Why do you think Peter doesn't want his feet washed? Well, the washing of the feet is normally a servant or some humble person that does it. <clears throat> okay. And here's Jesus, the person that they know as the true God, is now washing their feet. Which, yeah. Which is he feels is humiliating to Jesus, probably. Yeah. And what does Jesus know about humiliation? Well, he's... Now, that's something from uh, in catechism class. Uh, this I'll, I'll be talking about Leroy Martin instead of uh, uh, Daniel Deutschlander. Leroy Martin passed away two weeks ago. He was the pastor who taught me catechism. And uh, one thing I remember he did, uh, and I do this when teaching the Apostles' Creed. I think every pastor I know of uh, does this when teaching the, the Apostles' Creed, is takes the lines of, of the second article. Okay. Uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. The steps of Jesus' humiliation. Each step. He still has what nature? He has the human nature and he still has the, God, the, God. the divine nature, but he hides it. He uses the divine nature less. Uh, he hides it so that he can do his work. And uh, each of these steps in, in these lines of the Apostles' Creed, each one... Jesus is using even less of his divine nature for his advantage. He still's got it. And we, we, see, we see that even before Pontius Pilate. Jesus tells Pilate what he knows. He's still got his divine nature, but he's, uh, as St. Paul says, he empties himself. 
uh, takes on the form of a servant. Uh, and so, uh, by humbling himself to wash his disciples' feet, that is kind of a type of what he's going to do the next day. He's really going to take on the form of a servant, isn't he? He humbles himself Thursday night. He's going to humble himself to the lowest degree tomorrow. Uh, so, uh, Peter thinks Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is the master, this is humiliating for him. Lord, you will never, ever wash my feet. Uh, when Jesus says, you do not understand, but later you will understand, uh, that ends up being kind of a common, a repeating theme in John 2. The disciples don't understand, but later they get it. Uh, this is not just about dirty feet. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter says, oh, then my feet, my head, my hands, everything. Um, we're going to talk about Judas in a minute, in a few minutes. Maybe in 20 minutes, I don't know. I might get off track. Uh, we're going to talk about Judas later on. What was the thing that really led to Judas' condemnation? Was it that the betrayal was that bad? Is that why Judas ended up in hell? Judas did not repent. And he hung himself. Okay, and it was... Well, there was sort of a repentance, wasn't there? He, he had a bad feeling. Yeah. Uh, the, the phrase, I think, is seized with remorse. I don't know what the EHV has for that, but that's the phrase I remember. Judas was seized with remorse. Uh, and then went to the chief priests and threw his 30 pieces of silver back in and said, I betrayed innocent blood. And the chief priests say, say, eh, that's your problem. And then he goes out and hangs his, himself. He despairs because he don't, doesn't think that forgiveness is for him. What I've done is just too bad. How can I face the other disciples after what I did to the master? So it's despair. Uh, it's giving up on any hope of forgiveness. Uh, and so Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me. Oh, wash my head, my feet, my hands, everything. Um, somewhere I, I heard this talked about as Judas' repentance was an incomplete repentance. He was sorry enough, but he didn't look to the solution. 
The solution is Jesus. Jesus. We say it every Sunday. The blood of the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Did you, uh, Jesus know that this was going to be with Judas? Did he know this was going oh, yeah. to be? Yeah. And we're going to see that in a okay. few minutes. Okay. That's uh, when we get to the second section. There are three sections of John 13. So the first section is Jesus washes his disciples' feet. The second section is about Judas. And then the third section is love one another. And then that gets into uh, Jesus and Peter again. Uh, so, uh, yeah, if I do not wash you, you have no part of me. Uh, that repentance without looking to Jesus is only half repentance, incomplete repentance. Uh, So, does G into verses 10 and 11, verse 10, your question was, does Jesus know what's going to happen with Judas? You are clean, but not all of you. Uh, the, the, the first you at the end there is a plural. Uh, I think some translations may have, all of you are clean, all except one. And that works too. I guess I was thinking could he have changed Judas could have changed his whole yeah and did, did Jesus give him opportunities yes Yes. Uh, Judas are you going to betray the son of man with a kiss I was but Lord now I can't do it he had the opportunity uh, just the way Jesus asks the question uh Jesus gives him the opportunity. Um, I remember that, but I can, can't fathom that as a human being wanting to, you know what I'm saying? I want to see the best, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I won't bother you anymore. Well, no, no, no. Me. Well, yeah, and, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, and that, I think that kind of falls into one of these divine conundrums that we have, it's not a conundrum for God. It's a conundrum for us because we live in time. We can't really fathom eternity. We can't really understand what is it like for God to be outside of time. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker or... Uh, the wall hanging, do not be afraid of tomorrow because God is already there. That, that blows the mind. One thing that we cannot get around, and this, this affects uh, doctrines like predestination too. That's kind of in the same category. Does God's foreknowledge equal causation? If God knows what's going to happen, does that mean he causes it to happen? Sometimes he allows, often, 
He allows things to happen because he has a higher purpose in mind. Uh, but does God's foreknowledge of evil mean the same thing as God causing evil? It doesn't. It's, it's just God's eternal nature and our, the limits of our human nature and our human understanding of time. Uh, but God's foreknowledge is not the same thing as causing it. Um, this is, oh, and this comes, gets into another thing too about free will and the extent to, to which we have free will. And that uh, uh, Martin Luther in um, The Bondage of the Will would say that the Christian, well, any human being, uh, your, your will is never truly free because we're bound by sin. We have sinful nature. We're bound to sin. Never truly free. Uh, but on God's part, uh, God does not force our obedience. He wants our obedience to be a willing thing. And you see that at the beginning. The, the he gives Adam and Eve, puts the tree in the garden for Adam and Eve, not as a temptation, but as an opportunity for obedience. And the devil turns that around. Um, so, um, how do we get to that? Talking about Judas. Yeah. Uh, you know, God is never the author of evil. Uh, and uh, he does know all things. And this is what Jesus shows us here too. Uh, this part in verse 16 and 17 when he says, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Uh, in a roundabout way, Jesus is... It, is saying, guys, guess what you can expect? If these things, if if I if I have to be a servant, what can you expect to be? Also a servant. Yeah, something that um, that John does not give us. Uh, the other gospel writers do. What was happening on the way up to the upper room? They were arguing who's the greatest. Yeah, there was an argument about which one of them was the greatest. Uh, what an argument to have. Uh, do you remember a similar incident with James and John? And they hide behind their mother and they say, Mom, ask him. And what does Mom ask? Son on the left and son on the right. Yeah, when you come in your kingdom, can 
one of my sons sit at your right and one at my left. And uh, remember, we were talking about Palm Sunday last week and what kind of expectations people had uh, for a savior, somebody to, to kick out the Romans, somebody to make Israel great again, that kind of thing. And, uh, and so they're arguing about greatness. Then they get up there, what does Jesus do? Teaches them about humility. Um, so a servant is not greater than his master. As my disciple, what can you expect to do? Be a servant. Uh, that was something I just saw. I watched a Deutschlander lecture, lecture about the theology of the cross. Uh, and in that lecture, he said, every Christian should tape a note to, to the mirror so that when you get up in the morning, it's the first thing you see. And on that note, it should say, me last. And then, then you're, you're following Christ if you think me last. Uh, the theology of the cross uh, goes against the me first attitude that our flesh often has. So here Jesus is teaching them, before he's been teaching them, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Here he's showing them, this is what it means to make yourself nothing, to take on the form of a servant. Okay. All right. Any other thoughts? All good questions. Thoughts on foot washing, Judas, Peter? Did you know that there are some denominations that make a big deal about foot washing? I've even seen church supply catalogs. You can get a special little plastic basin. It's almost like a sacramental thing that they make of washing the feet, uh, especially on Monday Thursday. And what Jesus is talking about is more than washing feet. Uh, as I have washed your feet, as I have served you in all humility, you serve one another. Uh, something that popped into my head as I was preparing for this is that Jesus washing his disciples' feet, and then as he's talking with Peter, you, you learn this is kind of a metaphor for forgiveness. You remember a certain prayer that Jesus taught that kind of that teaches this same lesson in one of the lines. Forgive as I have forgiven you. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who sin against us. 
As I have washed your feet, as I have forgiven you, you also wash one another's feet and forgive one another. Uh, in verse 18, Jesus uh, or John is sounding a lot like Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew likes to say, such and such happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. And that's what we have in verse 18. I'm not talking about all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is so that the scripture may be fulfilled. One who eats bread with me has raised his heel against me. I'm telling you this right now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am he. Uh, this is a quote from Psalm 41. And in Psalm 41, David is complaining about unfaithful friends, people who conspire against him. And sometimes we see, well, especially in the Psalms, and especially as King David writes, sometimes David is writing about himself, but it's foreshadowing something that's going to happen to Jesus. Um, there are, in Scripture, there are direct types of Christ. Um, and then there are many, many other things in the Old Testament that the New Testament never points back to them, but you can see they, these are very, very similar, even foreshadowing to what Jesus is going to be like. David dealing with unfaithful friends. Uh, Joseph being sold into slavery. Joseph in the Old Testament is never talked about as a type of Christ, but you can see things that are almost a type with him. Uh, so in the same way with David, with unfaithful friends, bad advisors, people conspiring against him. Uh, and David writes about it in the psalm. Well, then it becomes prophetic. Jesus applies it to himself. Uh, yeah. I'm telling you that before it happens, so when it happens, you may believe that I am he. Who is Jesus? All-knowing. Yeah, all-knowing Son of God. Uh, and then, amen, amen, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now we get to Jesus with Judas. We're in the second section of John 13. Uh, something we talked about last time, was it last time? Was it the time before? Was it, was it three weeks ago? I don't know anymore. Uh, is what, what are Jesus' two natures? Two natures of Christ. Man nice and God. Yeah, fully human, fully God. Uh, and at all times, fully human. 
and fully God. And that sometimes you see these blended so perfectly uh, that because he's divine, he knows all kinds of things. And then because he's human, he has a certain feeling about them. Uh, Jesus is at the, the grave of Lazarus. And John makes the point of saying it was a, a cave tomb with a stone rolled in front of it. And Jesus looked at it and was deeply moved. Why? He knows in a couple months, I'm going to be in a place like that. So here we have, uh, after saying this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Amen, amen, I tell you, one of you will betray me. So we got who is another who is Jesus moment. Fully divine because he knows who's he knows. going to betray him. He knows what's going to happen. Fully human because He has a reaction to that knowledge about what's going to happen. He's troubled. Yeah. Um, and I like the word troubled because we might tend to paraphrase or, or wanna wanna add a flavor to the troubled, apprehensive, worried. Uh, no, he's not worried. He's not apprehensive. He's not scared. He's just troubled. Oh boy. I gotta go through this. Oh my. What? I couldn't have done more for Judas. Uh, like that. I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples were looking at each other, uncertain of which of them that he met. Uh, our famous painting on the back wall there by Leonardo da Vinci. That's the original, by the way. You wish. Yeah. Um, that is meant to portray uh, the moment Jesus says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. And then they're leaning this way and that way saying, is it I? Is it I? And that's from the Gospel of Matthew. Is it I? Uh, and then this very scene, these very verses are what the, the painting is supposed to portray. Uh, one of the disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motion to him to find out which one he was talking about. So you've got Peter leaning behind Judas and whispering to John, ask him which one he means. Um, on the sheet that I'm going to give you later, uh, I've got a, another scholar uh, thinks that from what he knew about the customs of the time, that the disciples were seated in kind of a U shape, kind of a horseshoe shape. Uh, and that that would have been the custom 
for a, a dinner at that time. And then servers would come and the open end of the table, that's where they would bring the food. And so he's got uh, John on one side of Jesus, Judas on the other, and then Peter's across from John, and Peter leans across the table and, and asks John, and Jesus whispers to John without anybody else knowing, uh, the one I give the, the bread to, that is the one. So anyway. Verse 23, one of the disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to find out which one he was talking about. So leaning back against Jesus' side, he asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread after I have dipped it in the dish. Then he dipped the piece of bread and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do more quickly. Aren't those loaded verses? The other 11 disciples all saw Jesus do this and gave it to Judas and yeah. they had heard him. Why didn't they? Nothing was mentioned about them saying anything. Yeah, it seems, as it is here, it seems that this was very, a very quiet thing between Peter and John and Jesus, that it was not out loud. Uh, ask him which one he means, and then, okay, everybody, it's the one I give the bread to. He didn't. No, it was just just watch who I give the bread to. It was like it was like that. Uh, a very very quiet thing. Uh, so. Uh, and that tells us something too. Did Jesus want the 11 disciples to tackle Judas and stop it? No, because then scripture wouldn't be right. fulfilled. And so that, that would have been, oh, here we get to the theology of the cross and the theology of glory again. That would have been theology of glory. That would be, you know, if he wanted to set up his kingdom. Okay, these are going to be my, like Robin Hood's merry men, uh, fighting for it. Uh, and then you have that problem with Peter later, uh, pulling out a sword. So, uh, in, well, in Middle Eastern cooking, uh, there are many sauces and dips. And you know some of them, you may know of hummus. And you take a little wedge of pita bread and you dip it into the hummus. Uh, for Passover, uh, 
there are many things involved in past, the Passover with dipping things. Uh, there's something about dipping parsley into salt water as a remembrance of the tears of Egypt. Uh, there's, uh, and some of these things may have been later, that developed later in Judaism and the, the celebration of the Passover. Uh, there's a dip called Keroseth, which is supposed to remind people of bricks and mortar. Remember the Egypt stomping in the mud and making bricks in Egypt? And so it would be uh, like diced apples or diced dates uh, in some kind of a sauce, so it would look like bricks and mortar. Uh, and then sometimes they would dip bread into that. Uh, some people think that may have been a later thing. I looked up a couple articles on what was the thing they dipped in the dish. And uh, uh, one article I saw was uh, one probable answer for what was what did they dip the bread into something called garum, which was a kind of a fish sauce that was used in the Roman Empire by rich and poor alike. Uh, anybody ever have like an Asian fish sauce? Don't. It's 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 really it's kind of nasty. Kind of if you didn't like the the perfume from last week, and that had a little funk. This is pure funk. This is, uh, uh, well, if you ever had anchovies in a salad, and there's this kind of a salty, oily, nasty flavor to them. What the Romans used to do is they used to uh, have uh, Oh, it was like a whole field full of trays of this, these fish that would, it would be out there aging and fermenting. And then they would somehow uh, filter it, distill it somehow into this garum fish sauce. So one article said, what did they dip into? Garum fish sauce. Uh, that that's a possibility. Also, just everything in Middle Eastern cooking, hummus, baba ganoush. Ever ever tell, talk about baba ganoush? It's an eggplant dish. Hummus is popular. Baba ganoush hasn't gotten too popular. But it, baba ganoush is you take an eggplant, you roast it, you mix it up with tahini, which is a sesame paste, and some garlic, and, and some other things, and then that's a dip. Okay. So what did Jesus dip into the dish with? Well, it could have been fish sauce, it could have been hummus, it could have been baba ganoush, it could have been one of those things for Passover. What it was, was not as important as what it meant. This is the one. Uh, um, so verse 27 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you reflect on verse 27 
the first half of verse 27. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Any thoughts on that verse? Wasn't Satan with him before that already? Yeah, wasn't that it? before? It was Satan put the idea into his head about uh, betraying Jesus. That was in the first verses. Any feelings about that? That phrase, Satan entered into Judas. He took away any remorse he might have had. Oh, he had some remorse later, didn't he? But at the moment, no. Is it going from Judas's free will into Satan's will? He, he, well, the, the, remember the free will is never totally free because we're, uh, we've got that sinful nature. But uh, the other part of that bondage of the will thing is our human will is bound to sin until God frees it. Until you get the, the, that pronouncement, you are forgiven and counted as a child of God. And now you can live for him in, in holiness, innocence, and blessedness, as the Catechism says. And so Satan entering into Judas is just the opposite. His will is getting bound more and more to evil. Uh, something I thought of with then Satan entered into Judas is it made me think of what do we mean about the indwelling of Christ in a Christian? It means that we hear his word his word has a place in our hearts. It, it, it comforts us, it guides us, and it moves us. Okay, now I'll flip that around. Then Satan entered into Judas. The thought of greed uh, was what moved Judas and guided his thoughts. Uh, to the exclusion of anything else. Then the second half of that verse. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do more quickly. Who's really in charge here? Jesus. And even though Satan is entering into Judas and Judas is going to the chief priests and they're going to do their thing, then they're going to take him to Pontius Pilate and he's going to do his thing. Who's really in charge? 
Who's in control of the pace of things? What you're going to do, do more quickly. Uh, here we have another marriage of the, the divine and the human in Jesus. Uh, because he's divine, he's in complete control. Because he's human, he doesn't want to mess around with this, this passion thing any longer than he has to. What you're going to do, do quickly. None of those reclining at the table understood why Jesus said this to it. Because Judas kept the money box. Some thought Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Uh, something about the Passover. Oh, that, I don't like the way that highlights uh, something about the Passover is that uh, they had to wait until sundown of the day before the Passover to celebrate the Passover. Uh, sundown was where they counted the beginning of a new day. And so for Jesus and his disciples to be celebrating the Passover, it already had been sundown. So, it was already night. I did read one writer who was taking this figuratively. I'm not sure if I won't really want to. But he was talking about kind of the way John talks about light and darkness. And that his thought was this phrase, Judas went out and it was night. They're talking about this is... Judas going into the darkness. Uh, but I would say, because of the way Passover was celebrated, it was night anyway. So, um, I think we will draw the line there. Oh, let's get 31 and 32. Then we've got the third part. That's a little bit better break. Uh, after Judas left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. Oh, what's kind of weird about this? Jesus knows what's about to happen. You've heard the Passion history so many times that it's not weird to you anymore. What does Jesus know is, gonna, is going to happen within an hour or two? And the next day, be betrayed. Betrayal. Yeah. Arrest. Crucifixion. Beating. Abuse. Crucifixion. And what does he call all of that here? Glorification. Glorification. Isn't that weird? Yeah. 
Why does he call that glory? This is a theology of the cross moment too. Uh, Jesus looks at suffering and calls that glory because we'll throw some John 3.16 into it or John 3.15 by his suffering what's he going to do? Save us. Re redeem the whole world. Uh, and that he displays his love through suffering. He accomplishes his goal through suffering. Something that uh, I might write a note to the EHV people. Um, something that uh, we may not catch is verses 31 and 32 have a poetic structure to them. Uh, and uh, there's, remember I talked about Psalm 23 uh, has this structure that the central thought is in the central line and that it kind of unfolds on that central thought. Uh, so, uh, what Jesus says here, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and glorify him at once. Glorify him at once, that goes back to that first part. Now the Son of Man is glorified. But he's saying it this way to show, this is my glory this is my Father's glory. My Father is well pleased with everything that's happening. He glory, glories in me. And everything that's about to happen is going to be awful and wonderful at the same time. This is glory. Professor, not Professor Deutschland, but a different professor that I had said the idea that bad things are bad for you is a bad idea because God can make all things work out for good. Even the worst thing for him, he worked out for good. Uh, even the worst thing for him, Jesus calls glory. All right, anything on what we looked at tonight? As we go forward, uh, I should have printed out more of those little cards. Uh, as we go forward, think of law and gospel connections, catechism connections, other parts of scripture that the part we're talking about uh, makes you think about. So we've got the last section of John 13 and then uh, another one of those golden sections, golden verses, uh, John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled, I go to prepare a place for you. We'll be covering that next time.
Yeah. Uh, in this pass, uh, passage of 31, is, it, is he also talking about the, the Trinity? Well, he doesn't bring the Spirit into it, does he? But he does talk about this close, close unity, doesn't he? Uh, here's a Deutschlander thought. I remember Professor Deutschlander talking about this. He says, whenever the uh, one member of the, the Holy Trinity is talking about the other, uh, he talks about the others in very, very glowing terms. The Father speaks from heaven in Jesus, at Jesus' baptism. What does he say? I'm well pleased. This is my beloved Son. In him I am well pleased. Transfiguration, same thing. Uh, Palm Sunday afternoon. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. I have glorified it. And with you I'm going to glorify it again. Uh, Jesus talks, that's going to be later uh, in the Gospel of John. J Jesus talks about sending the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will instruct you in everything. Uh, just wait till the Holy Spirit comes. Uh, speaks of the, Jesus speaks of the Spirit in, in glowing terms. And then the Spirit, in charge of inspiring all the scriptures, really says very little about himself, but it's always pointing us to the Father and the Son. Uh, is this the Trinity? Well, it's, it's shared glory, isn't it? There is something in the Trinity, in the doctrine of the Trinity, they call it communication of attributes. Uh, the Father, oh, this is the, the Athanasian Creed. The Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. Uh, there are not three eternals, but one eternal. You could say this is kind of like that. What glorifies Jesus glorifies the Father. What glorifies the Father glorifies Jesus. All right. Okay. Got some really good stuff for next time, too. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, teach us to follow you to follow you through suffering, to remember that we are servants just as you were a servant. And just if you serve us as our teacher and Lord, we should expect to serve too. So give us that heart of a servant. Give us the heart of a loving Christian brother or sister who forgives trespasses as we have been forgiven that we follow you in that too, follow you in forgiveness and love. We pray in your most holy name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.